Fishing like a local isn't just about catching fish. It's about connecting with the environment and the people who call it home. It's about hearing the stories and traditions that have been passed down for generations and sharing unforgettable moments with the people you meet along the way. Fishing like a local is having an experience that stays with you forever. And with Fishing Booker, you can experience it too, no matter where you are. Discover your next adventure on Fishing Booker. Well, gang, this is a very special interview. I was lucky enough to sit down with Mr. Bill Shedd, president of AFCO, and he is so much more than just AFCO. So please tune in, listen to this. I think you guys will be as impressed, if not more, than I was. I was super impressed, and I learned a lot during this interview. So sit back, relax, and listen. Bill Shedd from AFCO, but he goes way deeper than AFCO, guys. We're going to delve into his life and his family and his father, and some of the things that they have done in this industry of fishing is absolutely incredible. I'm learning a whole bunch just today by being here, so you guys are going to be overwhelmed with the amount of information that Bill's gathered over his lifetime with him and his family. So, so Bill, why don't you tell us a little bit about your dad and where you guys got started and how you ended up where you are today? Well, it certainly started with my father, Milt Shedd. He was a guy that I know a lot of people that love to fish, but I don't know anybody that liked to fish like that, like to fish. I think we stopped counting it, uh, wow, well over 3,000 days on the water. He'd go on a 16-day long-range trip, and uh, I'd go on a long-range trip with him like that. I like to fish, but I would be ready to be home. Dad couldn't wait to get back out the day he was back. So he just never, <laughs> I ne understand ne that passion. Never, never got enough of it. Just had a passion for the ocean, had an interest in the ocean. Started as a four-year-old. He walked out on the uh, Santa Monica Pier, and he looked down. He saw a bunch of a smelt being chased around by something. And from that point on, he just had this fascination for what's in the ocean, how do the fish eat? Who tries to eat them? Okay, and, uh, so he grew up curious. in Southern California. Grew up in Southern California. Okay, that's good information to have. And then your father, how did he evolve the fishing thing? He started seeing the fish. Did he work on the boats? Did he no, go he, fishing on the boats? How did he do what it What he did all? was this was back trying to catch uh, food to eat. As a, as a kid, his mom would drive him down to the, uh, to the pier. He'd fish and try to uh, catch fish to sell in the neighborhood to make a few bucks for the, for the family. And then uh, he got to where uh, he could get out on a half-day boat. Uh, no, actually, first he got out on the barge. He okay. could catch halibut and some, some better stuff. And he got good enough that he could go around and take orders from neighbors for fish. Oh, wow. And it, was, it wasn't, well, like he started doing this at like 8 or 10. Mom would drop him off. Um, and then uh, he got a little older, and she let him ride the, the bus down to the pier. And then by the time he was 16, he could try to borrow a car and drive down to the pier. But... Um, yeah, just could never never get enough of fishing and just every chance he, he had. And the barge was a pretty big deal to get to go out on the barge, huh? Yeah, well, he'd be on the pier, you know, catching mackerel and barracuda and bonita and watch these guys come in with halibut and off the barge, just anchored right there, yellowtail and all this good stuff. So he thought it was big time once he made it to the barge. Oh, yeah, that's how my father, he was the barge boat captain. Yeah. My yeah. dad was the barge boat captain, and that was a big deal back in those days to get to go to the barge. Yeah, so I can I can feel what your father was feeling, how cool it was. That was. Cool. And then, so then what happened? How? So he so, got so into then, that. Then he graduated where he got a chance to fish on some of the sport boats and fish, uh, you know, get to Catalina and San Clemente, and um, then uh, went off to the war and... Uh, uh, as a as a junior at UCLA, uh, uh, and that's not true. I guess he had actually he, he actually 
He actually, once he graduated from UCLA, then he went off to uh, war. He had some credits he still had to take when he came back. Okay. Um, uh, then he needed to figure out how to make a living, so he went out trying to sell stocks and sold, sold stocks as a stockbroker for a lot of years. But his passion was the ocean, and he always wanted to find a way to uh, make a living with something on the ocean. All right. So, so what he, um, he and a fraternity brother from UCLA were going to start a restaurant in, uh, in Long Beach. And that became SeaWorld. Really? So your father started SeaWorld. Listen to this, guys. Well, he and a, a George Millet, he and a fraternity brother from UCLA, they were going to build a restaurant in Long Beach Harbor, Harbor and um, uh, have a, uh, a basement area that would be underground where you'd look into the bay and you could see fish swimming by. And you, you, But they, they, they figured out that a lot of times there wouldn't be any fish. And even if there was fish, the water might be too dirty. Okay. So you wouldn't be able to see anything. So they figured, what if we built a sort of a dam out around uh, um, uh, this area where people are looking into the into the bay? People would think they're looking into the bay, but they'd be looking into a, basically an aquarium. An aquarium. And then he, he, the way he subscribed it was one night uh, with his partner, uh, with uh, he, he said a few beers too many. He thought, hey, if we could do this, why couldn't we build an, an oceanarium? And neither he and his partner had much money, so. Well, they put all the money that they had into what was uh, not just artist renderings, but uh, fully developed, uh, uh, engineered plans of what a uh, an oceanarium could be. Okay. And um, went down to the city of San Diego, and, uh, and at that point, he had all of his life savings locked up in something that still had a long ways to go. Um, had to convince the city to change the zoning to allow for a, uh, an oceanarium there, which they did. Then they had to put it out to uh, public bid, so they get by that, and they any 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 of those times along the way he'd have lost it all. Uh, they, they, they were successful there, and now you know if you're going to go chase the fire trucks, you got to be careful what you wish for because you might catch it. <laughs> yeah. Now they got to figure out a way to build this ocean area and okay. raise the money for yeah. it. Yeah. That was one of Dad's main responsibilities. He'd been in that investment banking business, so one of his main roles was to go out to guys, which primarily were wealthy sport fishermen. Okay. And, uh, try to get them to invest in this future thing called SeaWorld. Now, just because I'm not, I don't know anything about this story. Was Marineland around at that time? Yeah, Marineland. Marineland was. was up there in California. No, most of the people on my website don't even know what Marineland was, but that was a aquarium on Palos Verdes that yeah. I remember my dad taking me to before SeaWorld. Yeah, no, it was, and that was. I remember Dad telling me stories. He he go to talk to people about investing in SeaWorld, and they say, you know, Mel. I don't want to do it. You're making a mistake. There's no way that it can survive because there's already a, a, a very successful oceanarium called Marineland in Palos Verdes. Most of the populations in LA back in 1962 when they started looking at this 61, there wasn't much of an Orange County and there was, wasn't much of a San Diego even. Okay. And um, people aren't going to drive from LA past Marineland to go to this serial thing you're talking about. So, okay. so don't do it. All right. Um, but, but the other connection to Marine Land, uh, the guy who was the head curator there, um, the guy who was head of all the, all, all the animals, all the fish and all the marine life, a um, guy by the name of Kenny Norris was also a fraternity brother of Dad. So he joined this group of the two other guys, of Dad and his partner. And then they brought in a third, fourth guy from UCLA who was an accountant. And Kenny Norris was going to um, be responsible to collect all the fish and... Um, he got an endowed chair at UCLA. He was more of an academic than a 
business person. Okay. And um, so he left early on. So now the three of them are sitting there. Who's going to figure out how to collect all these green life? <laughs> Dad put his hand up in there and said, hey, "Oh yeah, that's my job." Um, so that was his, uh, his one of his early roles was to uh, oversee the collection of, of the fish. And there's great great stories of uh, Cabo San Lucas. Um, Dad was uh, invited, got to know well a guy by the name of Herb Bell that owned a company called Packard Bell, uh, which back in the day was a major electronics company. Loved to fish, had a boat called the Five Bells, 100-foot boat. Dad was a local hotshot angler, and uh, Herb Bell was older. And uh, he, he invited Dad to come on these local trips with him to make sure that his friends would catch fish. They were fishing locally for marlin, for, for, for yellowtail, for, 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 for white sea bass, for whatever. Uh, great for Dad as a young guy trying to make it in the uh, security, in the stock brokerage business, in the securities business, because he got exposure to these older, wealthy guys. And then her bell, they started taking the five bells down to uh, Cabo San Lucas, 1952. That was really the opening of sport fishing to Cabo San Lucas. 1952. 1952. Wow, no, that's no, insane. Nothing, no, nothing there. Just I think the uh, the cannery was barely even open, even if it was at the time. But no, nothing there at all. But that led to later. Um, uh, Dad knew, had fished there many years, knew the area, knew where the fish were in part. And um, so in 1963, he went down there to begin to collect uh, uh, fish for SeaWorld. They, there was nothing there then. There was the hatchery, and that was about it. They uh, netted off part of the, uh, the harbor so that they could have a uh, holding area for fish that they caught really? during the day. Wow, that's insane. Fished all day long, dove, dove all day long, dove at night, slurped guns for little fish, and. Uh, um, collected and the, the thing that was back to the fishing industry community, the light bait boats that were fishing down in Central America, but stopped in Cabo San Lucas to refuel. Um, their bait wells were empty. They're on their way back up with the fish. Uh, Dad knew some of those guys, and um, he said that they then filled their bait wells back up, carried the fish back up to San Diego for them. That's what I was just going to ask you. How do you get the fish back up there? Okay. And, and he, Look at I remember that. Him, he just answered my question. I remember him bragging. He said, you know, we didn't have to, to pay the guys a pack of cigarettes or a bottle of beer. They just were happy to do it for free um, because they just, and the fishermen, they were interested in this thing that was happening in San Diego with this oceanarium. Oh, and, how uh, cool. So it was di different times. Yes, Today, way different di times. Different times. And so then you got these fish up there to SeaWorld, but look at SeaWorld. It's got killer whale, dolphins. It's got way more than just the fish, right? So what did it start out with? Just fish? And then the whale came later? Just or? fish and then the nut and, and dolphins. Okay. I remember being down there when they had the first dolphin uh, at SeaWorld, you know, just doing grading out in the back and uh, just one tank and a trailer. Uh, but, uh, yes, uh, dolphins from the beginning, uh, pilot whales early on. Uh, Shamu didn't come till later. Okay. And that's such a, you know, there's so much talk now about, uh, gosh, it's so, uh, from the extreme environmentalists, it's so horrible that you had these killer whales in activity. But th th think about this. Before there was SeaWorld, before there was Shamu, killer whales were, as their name indicates, they were this fearsome, this feared creature that people were afraid of. So um, something to be destroyed. You know, fishermen shot them. People don't believe this, but the truth is, the Navy used to use killer whales to, uh, 
in their, their, their Air Force in the Navy as target practice is strafe them to shoot them because it's a big animal and it's moving, so it's a good target to practice on. Oh my gosh. Machine gunning. Oh, wow. Machine gunning killer whales. Crazy. So how does that how does that change to today? It changes by people going to places like SeaWorld and seeing By your father. This is this is an animal that's beautiful, it's intelligent, it's uh, uh, something not to be feared, but, but to be understood and loved. Tell and, me uh, what you think of this. This is what I tell people. There's 27 of them in captivity in the whole world. How could that actually affect, besides in a good way, it can't really affect them that bad. Uh, could it? No. no, no at no. all? It, it, I mean, we, I don't know anything compared to what you know. Those 27 killer whales, um, I, I, I don't know with all of them, but I know that SeaWorld hasn't... Uh, taken any killer whales from the ocean for more than 20 years, they've got a breeding program. That's where the animals have come from. Right, and that's how we got all our, that's how we got all our information to find out anything about them. Because all we did, like you said before, that was kill them. So I don't understand the whole negative thing going around right now about having these poor animals inside of a, I think it's kind of cool that we get to see them and see how docile they are and how loving and caring they are and all that stuff because of what your father did. So how did we come to the point to catch one? That had to be quite an ordeal. Well, the first uh, first killer was they had at SeaWorld that SeaWorld didn't catch. There was uh, some guys up in up in the Seattle area that uh, that had captured uh, uh, SeaWorld uh, killer whales, and then SeaWorld purchased them uh, from them. Oh, okay. Uh, and uh, then after that, I believe SeaWorld did capture a few. Most of them, other people up there capturing them, they bought them. But the the uh, from day one. Um, uh, even many people have asked me, says, gee, Bill, your, your dad was quite a visionary and that he, um, uh, he and his partner started SeaWorld. And I said, well, there's lots of people that have started businesses that were uh, bigger than SeaWorld. There's a lot of people that started all kinds of businesses. But what really makes him unique was, as far as a visionary, was he had the ability to see into the future that um, businesses were going to be required to be more responsible back to their community. So what Dad did, SeaWorld opened in 1964. He, uh, he, he, he and Mom founded and started what's now the Hub SeaWorld Research Institute. In 1963, it was incorporated and actually doing marine science work a year before SeaWorld even opened. Lots of people have built successful businesses, taken that money, and then created some kind of foundation. Dad thought, look, um, the world's going to change. Um, we're going to be required to, uh, in the future, to do good things back to our to the community, and uh, and we need to figure out how to do that. And our community is more than San Diego; it's the ocean community. So what we can do is we can create a an institute where scientists and academicians can come in. Doesn't matter how big the university is. You could UCLA or San Diego State or USC. They're not going to have the money to be able to build the facilities to hold dolphins, killer whales, and marine life. But SeaWorld, by definition of its business, would have it there. Okay. And and, and so how do you let those people come in and learn about the animals for the, the betterment of the animals, not just in the park, but for the betterment of the animals in the wild? And uh, so you do it through this, this separate entity, and you do it in a way that doesn't disrupt the for-profit part of the business. So that's where the, the Hub SeaWorld Research Institute came into being. And that's the white sea bass hatchery kind of spawned off of that, right? Because <laughs> guys don't know that ocean enhancement stamp that we pay for, that goes straight to this hatchery program, which was founded by your father, right? 
pretty much. Yeah, by, by yeah, by 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 Dad and Don Kent. Right. Don Don Kent, who is currently the president, has been the president of Hubs for a uh, long time. Uh, he was a graduate student, and uh, Dad just fished enough locally that knew that white sea bass were in trouble. So he went to Don and said, "Look, there's some money. You go figure out uh, if we can raise them. Figure out if we could help Mother Nature bring them back." So we can't raise them in captivity and put them back in the ocean, and that all started in uh, oh gosh, the late 1970s, maybe the first part of 1980s, and then uh, after that, um, sport fishing community got together once they proved they could do it. Got together with uh, Larry Sterling, and they passed uh, legislation um, to create the ORHAP program and that stamp and the funding to uh, develop the, the hatchery program. That's, That's pretty program. amazing to be that far on the front of this thing now where we're, everything's so green now. But to think in the 70s, that's pretty cutting edge that your dad had a vision like that. That's actually, amazing. Actually back into the you know, early 60s. That's crazy. Yeah. That is so cool, though. That is so nice to know that that was there and ready to go for us. Because it, all it does is advantage for all of us fishermen. We get a We get a big advantage out of this whole thing. And if you ever have a chance to... Go down and see what goes on at the hatcheries and see all this. We were just lucky enough to take those fish out on our on my father's boats a month or so ago and release them into the wild. It's kind of a big deal. I mean, to go down there, see us feed them, and then we'll let them go. They're like our babies, and we let them go into the ocean. So, guys, what's one of the reasons that people fish? People fish because they're just curious about uh, about the ocean. They're curious about fish, and they want to figure them out. And um, but. What can you do to give back? What can fishermen do to try to help make sure there's fish in the future for our kids and grandkids and selfishly for, for us to go fish? Right. And one thing that you, that, that you can do is you can help support this hatchery effort. You can help support uh, entities like uh, CCA, the CCA. Conservation Association. And um, uh, well, if, we don't, if, if as fishermen we don't look for ways to uh, figure out how we can help with uh, resource issues, we're not going to have a opportunity. And that's one thing I love about your sister. Don has been really helpful to us at CCA and uh, uh, on the board of directors with us and, and, and helping us to build that organization into something that ultimately can be a powerhouse in the state for the benefit of, of uh, the anglers and uh, and the marine resource. And, and I think we're going to get there. No, I know we're going to get there because you guys are doing a phenomenal job. And with the help, of, like I say in all my seminars, if you're not a part of CCA, then you really don't have a reason to complain. Because you're not part of the solution. And I don't know if CCA is going to hit a home run or not, but you know what? They're the only ones out there doing anything for us recreational fishermen. And we need, all need to be a part of that. Don't you agree? Uh, absolutely. Can I talk a little bit about CCA here? Please. So, absolutely. My guys need to know. We're going to do a thing with Wayne soon. But great. Good, good guy. We're absolutely. Gonna, I love off. Wayne. He, he's out there killing himself, fighting that fight every day just for me and you. He's, he's working hard. CCA stands for the Coastal Conservation Association. Uh, started in Houston, Texas. It's uh, was it 40 years old. Uh, has 130,000 members nationally. And it's really a pretty simple formula. It starts with belief that all politics is local. So what it does is it goes into each, each of the states, coastal states. It's just a saltwater organization. Develops um, a state chapter and then develops local chapters. So there's now one in San Diego, there's one in, uh, in Orange County, there's one in, uh, in, in L.A., there's just a new, new one just opening up in the Inland Empire up here, there's one up in, uh, in Channel Islands, there's one in Santa Barbara. Ultimately, we're going to have 20, 30, 50 chapters all over the state. 
what happens is each of those chapters puts on a fundraising activity. Um, they also send uh, a representative to serve on the state board. But even more important than that money, there's relationships. So you have enough different local chapters of just guys that get together to, you know, they'll, they'll, they'll take fishing trips together, they'll, do, they'll put on seminars, they'll uh, uh, help with the white sea bass program, they'll do lots of different things, and they'll put on a fundraising activity. But the, those people now, they're invested, they're engaged, they're a part of this. And what, what does everybody have? Everybody has some relationships. You get enough of those chapters, and then you start linking together relationships where with not just uh, uh, the governor's office, but with the legislature, and you find uh, not just a friend that knew somebody once that saw somebody, but you know the, the brother of the legislator that's key on a given issue. Now you take that relationship and you put those of us that are involved in a specific issue on behalf of the sport fishing community, you put them together at lunch or in some environment where you can sit and talk to this person because that third party says, look, trust these guys. I know them. They know a lot about the ocean. Right. Um, and uh, look, you're the legislator. You need to, you need to, just, you, you need to know what they know. Do the set and, and listen for and, a little bit. And now these, those relationships are what, are what are key. And you get enough chapters, you have enough relationships, and that's why in the state of Texas, in the state of Louisiana, in the state of South Carolina, in the state of Florida, and, in a lot of, and even up uh, into Oregon and Washington, uh, the CCA is the dominant entity in the state for uh, not just the saltwater sport fishing community, but for marine resource issues. And that's going to happen in California. It'll happen quicker. Uh, if more people jump on board sooner. That makes sense. Like <clears throat> I keep saying, you guys got to get involved to make this better. It takes us. We can't just sit on the outside and expect somebody like Bill to do it all by himself or my sister or Wayne. We all need to be a part, right? Yeah, That's this, what's going to drive this thing, correct? Yeah, this group. The reason this, this is, group is, is doing so well so early is it's really, like a lot of entities, it's about people. And um, we've got just a tremendous board of directors. Our executive committee is uh, Dave Pfeiffer from Shimano, Bart Hall from the Bart Hall Shows, uh, Ali from uh, BD Outdoors, um, uh, Don Trojan uh, the handles our, our, our accounting and uh, from Trojan Accountancy. Um, uh, let's see, uh, John Bellotti, who's the, uh, the, uh, the president of the LA chapter, okay. and uh, Mike Lum, and uh, just lots of industry folks. Uh, most all the media, most all the major manufacturers, and oh geez, uh, right at 150 lifetime members, all of which have contributed more anywhere from a thousand to ten thousand dollars. Okay, so it's lots of individuals that have. Uh, and I think uh, your I'm a lifetime member. Got several family members: yes. your dad, your sister, you. They're lifetime members to uh, CCA, and um, it's just a it's a big lift. So there's a lot of people doing the lifting, and it's. Um, and I think the best thing that happened for us to get aware was the shock value of the MLPA. Yeah. That scared the heck out of a lot of us and made us wake up and understand that we need to get united. Because before the MLPA, you couldn't get two fishermen in Southern California to agree on anything. Yeah. <laughs> we were the most undivided people on the planet. Now we're all getting together on this CCA thing. I mean... We're driving it on the Fred Hall. I do a lot of seminars. You guys see me at a lot of seminars. And everywhere I do a seminar at, Wayne or somebody in the CCA is there every single time. Most of the time, Wayne's introducing me to you guys. And, yeah, it's 
phenomenal the amount of work that is being done in our favor, finally, in so, our favor. And so some of the specific things that's happening, uh, I'm sure there's a lot of people that are watching this uh, video right now that uh, have had a chance to cash in on this bluefin uh, explosion over the last half dozen so years. Well, uh, a little over a year ago, there was a move by the environmentalists to uh, put uh, bluefin tuna on the endangered species list. Now, if that would have happened, um, the catch of bluefin tuna by both commercial and recreational fishing over the last couple of years would have been zero. There have been no take, no, in fact, no fishing, no, 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 uh, not even recreation, not even recreation, not even catch and release, nothing. Right. So CCA played a major role in preventing that from happening. And it didn't need to happen because the reality is that the um, vast majority of the bluefin tuna are being taken on the uh, East Coast, on the, on, the, on, on the western side of the Pacific, okay. over in Taiwan and Japan and in those countries, and it would have made some environmentalists feel good, but it would have done really little to nothing for the population. So what CCA is doing is we've linked up with Dr. Barbara Block and um, uh, trying to figure out what is the age of a bluefin when it spawns. And the reason that that's such a big deal is so far the the Japanese and the Taiwanese and others who want to catch a lot of little fish have convinced the world that they spawn uh, from three to five years old. Dr. Barbara Block from Stanford thinks it's closer to seven to eight years old. So a bluefin tuna, um, to get to seven, eight years old, you've got to be about a little over 200, maybe 250 pounds. So what she's, she's doing, last year we put together a, a group, CCA did, we're going to do it again this next year, where we we tagged last year just one as a pilot program. We're going to do more this year. We tagged a 250-pound bluefin with a satellite tag, and she's going to look to see if the tag will pop off after after uh, after a year. Look to see if the fish stayed here or if it went uh, if it went back to Taiwan or Japan, which are the two known uh, spawning areas. Okay. And and if we do that with enough fish, we can prove that they don't travel at a young age, at three to five years, and spawn. They travel at seven to eight years. If you can prove that, now it takes uh, makes it easier for the fisheries managers to put more pressure on the foreign fleets to not take so many you know, other fish. juvenile fish. If, if a fish spawns young, then you can make the case. Well, it doesn't matter how many we kill because they're going to spawn soon anyway. Right, but if they're not spawning until they're big, we got a major problem. Yeah. Now, don't you think? Because we're into the bluefin thing now. Don't you think a lot of this? Bluefin that's going on out here is just showing that you're the what you guys have done for us by bringing the quotas down. Didn't you have a help a lot to do with bringing the quotas down for Mexico uh, with the Saner fleets it, and all that stuff? In, in part, but no, the, the, the real difference is, 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 is just um, um, is, is, is luck of the draw and is uh, is really is, is ocean conditions. Okay, so we've had. Uh, Cycles. Had, the cycles. We've had, cycles. We've had, you know, we haven't had this cycle for, what, 70, 80 years. Right. It's been a long time. If you look at the old Tuna Club, they're the ones that have the record. They, they show all the records of what really happened in Southern California all these years. That's right. And that fish was non-existent here. There hadn't been a, a bluefin landed at the Avalon, the pier, uh, for, I don't know, 70 years. It weighed more than 125 or 150 pounds until Greg Stosbury from here, our sales manager at Avalon. Right. On, on his boat, uh, uh, caught one about oh, five, six, six years ago. But so you've got the red crabs, you've had the warmer water, you've had uh, the bait stand, so the fish have stayed. Basically, what what uh, Dr. Block has shown and proven is that the fish uh, 
spawn in the Western Pacific off of ta Taiwan and Japan. Okay. Then when they're a year old, if bluefin are this big, not even a year old, they're, 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 they're small. They, some piece of them, there's only one population of bluefin tuna. In the Atlantic, there's a couple of separate populations. In the Pacific, there's one. And a piece of that, uh, of that um, school, of that population, it peels off and it comes across and it lives in, in on our coast. It lived down basically to, from Mag Bay up to, uh, up to the, the, the Oregon border. And it travels in this figure eight um, uh, all along our, our shore. Well, in past years, there still have been some fish there. But right. they've been further offshore. They've just been in an area where we didn't know where they were and we couldn't get at them. Okay. Um, but uh, you know what you're saying about quotas, that's, that's, that, that's, that's a factor. Uh, I don't think they're taking so many for the pins uh, down in Ensenada. Right. Uh, but it's mostly ocean conditions and cycles. Cycles. Well, we talked about so much on all these videos. We go into this whole cycle thing. And like Bill said, you look at what happened at the Tuna Club and Greg's perfect example because he's got his finger on that because he's involved with those guys and he knows that that thing was, that tuna was non-existent. If it was here, somebody would have stumbled into it. It, it wasn't here. It wasn't here. It wasn't here. And now it's decided something happened in the ocean to make it want to live here again. Bait, water, temperature, whatever it is. It's like what I tell my guys when you ride, remember when we were kids, we used to ride our bike and you'd hit that warm spot on your bicycle and you go, ooh, that was a kind of a cool, and then you get in the, Cold again, you want to get back to where that war. I think that's what happened with these fish. They were swimming around, and they went, wham, there's that water we've been looking for. Right? Yeah, I don't know. The conditions are right, so they so they stay. But bluefin tuna is one of the things that CCA has been uh, very much involved with. Another one has been, CCA has got three three priorities. One is to uh, uh, help uh, uh, with its hatchery program, its hubs' program. Uh, uh, another is to... Uh, uh, help uh, create additional habitat, which in large part means artificial reefs. And the third thing is just represent saltwater anglers on whatever issue is the most, that the board deems most important at the time. Okay. But with the hatchery program, um, CCA is playing a major role to uh, make sure that the hatchery program is being run properly, that it's being um, uh, moved forward appropriately. And uh, uh, we just recently uh, played, a, played a major role in, in helping to uh, have the, have the ORHAP program, the hatchery program, begin to look at the potential possibility for halibut in the future. Uh, CCA has already gone out and collected root stock of halibut. of halibut. It's already at the hatchery. That's kind of interesting. So that would be kind of cool because all my guys would love to catch a nice halibut one day. I mean, yeah. that's another missing fish for a lot of guys out of, out of their bucket list is to get a halibut. Do you guys, when you're in all these meetings, just because I got you here and I just want to ask this question, because I, when I ask my father this question, he shuts me down. You'll probably do the same thing. Any talk about the California sea lion? <laughs> no. I mean, I, okay. I, no, that's I, okay. I was just, I was just playing with you. Other than the obvious, there's too many of them. Yeah, but we can't do anything about it, and we that's won't touch a, that subject. I understand. That's I a, just was playing. It's a, it's a challenge. It's a problem. Big yeah. time. I mean, that's yeah. why we... A lot of the old timers were telling me they believe that's why that barracuda doesn't come in here anymore to spawn. Because if it slows down at all on the edges of the kelp, it gets inhaled. Just because that's an easy fish for those animals to get. And it's like a piece of spaghetti and they can slurp them up quick and get lots. And that's, I was the new thing I hadn't heard when I did that set, that interview with Don Brockman and Doug Harmon. That's what they were saying. But 
that's a really gnarly subject sea to lions, talk about. Sea lions are a challenge, and I don't know what the answer is. Okay. So your father built SeaWorld. He has that. He had that swordfish boat too. Your father swordfished for a while, right? Commercial swordfish. First year he did it. I was his, I was his deckhand. Okay. So you yeah. guys were harpoon and swordfish. Harpoon and swordfish. What an awesome experience that was. Pretty cool, huh? Pretty now cool. what years were those? That was nineteen. Uh, the first year he started was uh, the summer of uh, nineteen sixty. No, nineteen seventy. Summer of nineteen seventy. Wow. Crazy. Pretty fun. You guys have seen the boat up in Marina del Rey, I'm sure. The SeaWorld is still up there, right? So what he did was he uh, he, he took his boat, the SeaWorld, which he, we used to use to fish for fun on, recreational fishing. He used it to uh, fish albacore, hook and line. used it to uh, harpoon swordfish. And then um, when he got older and couldn't fish anymore, he donated to UCLA to help UCLA start a marine science center. Okay. Uh, but we had some great trips and an awful lot of fun on that uh, Battleboat fishing on the sea world. Oh, I bet. That's a beautiful boat. That would have been a fun platform to grow up on fishing a, on. It was a great platform. Oh, yeah. And then harpoon and swordfish. How cool is that? It's to about get the to... most exciting thing I've ever done is harpoon and swordfish. Okay. Yeah. And that's a very sustainable fishery because you're really just getting one at a time. There's zero bycatch. You're really not affecting the environment in any way negative, right? Because that fish, the minute you bring it in, it's eaten in a couple of days. They eat the whole thing. Those things don't sit on the shelf very long. It's the it's the most productive. It's the most environment not productive. There's more productive ways, but dynamite is more is pretty productive too. <laughs> yeah, there's more productive. A little ways. bit of bycatch that way though. Yeah, that's that's right. It's the most uh, clean way to uh, to fish out of the ocean. To get the swordfish, you can't do it for a lot of kinds of fish, and you can't catch enough swordfish to to meet the demand. But um, you know, they're just now looking at this uh, this buoy gear, developing this this buoy gear, which. The combination of buoy gear and harpooning, um, uh, I believe, is going to be a great replacement for gill nets. Oh, my gosh. We just have passed legislation in the state to... Uh, just between you and I, I'm not a big believer in the whole gill net thing. I never understood that. Because I used to go out with the guys when I was a kid and watch the bycatch. And just, this is unbelievable. Or if you had a sea bass in there and it was in the water for more than a day, the slime eels ate it. And you just got a, you look like a water balloon when it would come up. And I was like, this does, how's this right? As a kid, you're watching it, you're going, how does this make sense? Right? We need commercial fishermen. We need, oh, commer yeah. we need commercial fishing. But you know, those of us that care about the ocean and want to have our kids use it, we need to make sure that it's being used in ways that are responsible. Sustainable. Get, get, sustainable. Gill netting is not a responsible way to harvest from the ocean. It just, it, it, it is not. No, it never it, has been. It never will be. You can't convince it's me so. that it is because I've been on those boats and I've seen what happens. And a lot of guys don't understand. They just hear the word net and they just. But from those of us that have seen it, and I know you've seen it, there's alternatives. And, uh, you know, we just CCA is pushing for alternatives to be used as opposed to uh, ways that are more. It's more super important so that we have fish for our children to catch and that we get to go fishing. If there's nothing left, there's. Nothing left. It's over. All right. All right, gang. So this is going to wrap up our interview with Bill Shedd, owner of AFCO. It was cool to find out about his dad and all the cool things that Bill's been involved in in his life.